0: afterward, after the resurrection, after Jesus appeared to his disciples, after Thomas looked at his scars and believed, after that, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, which is Greek for twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were all together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood there on the shore. But the disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. Jesus calls out to them, friends, have you, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, They were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord! As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. And the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. Jesus came, he took bread, he gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. He's serving them breakfast. This is now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Talking about these others, disciples. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're an old, when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate what, the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? This is, by the way, John, who's writing this. When Peter saw John, he asked, Lord, what about him? What's going to happen to him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die, but Jesus didn't say that he wouldn't die. He only said... If I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. And then the last verse of the gospel. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Let's ask Jesus to help us, and we'll dive into this. Jesus, every week our need is the same. We need to see you. For our faith to be nourished, for it to grow. It's like a solar panel with the sun. We've got we've to sit under the sun. Our souls have got to get exposure to you. Our eyes have got to be able to see you. Our hearts have got to be able to, um, to, to, to lean into you. You're alive. You're so powerful. You're so good. So we ask you again, we come back week after week, and we say, would you help again? Would you please help tonight? Help me, help my friends. Let us see you as you are. Help us to understand what's next. We pray it in your name, amen. A few years after World War II ended in 1945, the allies, the US, the UK, all these other countries that had bound together to defeat Hitler, uh, they realized they had another existential threat a very imminent dangerous threat on their hands. The problem was that just three years after the war, Europe was still in tatters and the same thing that happened after World War I was beginning to happen. People were desperate. There were really no men to be in the workforce. They were all dead from the war. Uh, there was economic collapse. Buildings, bridges, roads, government buildings, schools were just craters. People were traumatized from going through years and years of wars in their towns, and so they realized this question, is post-victory Europe going to have a life after it, going to have a purpose and a meaning and a mission, or is post-victory Europe going to limp through the next few decades as a war zone? So their solution to the problem was what we've probably heard about in history classes as the Marshall Plan. The Marshall Plan was this super-audacious, probably-never-been-attempted-before kind of plan that the U.S. and the Allies put together, and it dumped about $170 billion into all these little towns and villages across Europe. And the point of it was to, to just infuse so much cash and manpower and investment in this war zone, that they would basically resurrect these cities and the society that was there before it was ruined in war. It was a four-year plan, reconstruction of industries, economies, buildings, bridges, schools. It was also aimed to tear down trade barriers that were always causing these countries to keep going to war with each other, to get them collaborating with each other, partnering together. And the reason I said earlier, the reason that the Allies knew that they had to go big, that they had to do this plan and and try to rebuild the society, infuse hope, meaning, purpose, motion again, is because of what happened after the First World War. Post uh, defeat of Germany in the First World War, there was no Marshall Plan. Where there was a void, it was filled. Where there was aimlessness, where there was economic collapse, where there was depression, it was filled. Unfortunately, it was filled with the Third Reich, the Nazi Party, with Hitler. And they didn't want that to happen again. So the Marshall Plan, uh, historians say generally it's a pretty big success uh, because it spared Europe from falling back off the tracks into war and catastrophe. It was designed to give people a way forward after victory, which you wouldn't think you'd need, right? You think that we won the war, awesome. And then about a week later, you're like, what's next? What do we do now? It's great that the Third Reich, that the Nazi party isn't torturing and and terrorizing our village, but we have nothing. What now? And that's why I bring up the story tonight. I want to press home the question after last week. What now? What's next? Christian, for you, what's next after victory? After Jesus has liberated you from the devil and you're a free woman, a free man, you can say no, you can fight back, you can expect to change. We're not talking about perfection here. We're not talking about beating all your struggles. We're talking about taking baby steps forward because you're alive. What's Next, after winning, Paul sets the stage really well in Colossians 2, just these two verses in in verses 13 and 14. He says this, just kind of summarizing everything we just said, and you, Christian, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven you all your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands he set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed, Jesus on the cross disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them and himself. That's everything that we've said. Jesus has released you from guilt and cleaned you once for all forever. Jesus has disarmed your captor and set you free. He has shamed the one who spent his existence shaming you. He has triumphed monumentally over that enemy. What's next? You would think John's gospel ended right before what I read. If you have a Bible or a phone, go look at John chapter 20. The book was supposed to end before what I started reading tonight. Listen to this. Uh, you would expect a tidy, nice, nice little bow at the end of this beautiful story that we've been looking at since August, right? Right? Most books have a pretty clean ending. You know, the, the music starts to play, everything fades out, and the credits start to roll. That happens at the end of chapter 20, not chapter 21 that I just read. It's this beautiful scene, the climactic moment where doubting Thomas uh, finally professes belief in Jesus as Jesus so tenderly accommodates himself to Thomas's doubts, and he says, Would it help to see, Thomas? Would it help to touch? And Thomas says something that nobody else in this story has said yet My Lord and my God. And right after that, John writes this in verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples, which are not written about in this book. But these things that I've written are so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What a great ending! right? Doesn't it sound like an ending? Um, And then you think after the fade out, a whole nother chapter comes on. A whole nother like 30 minutes of the movie comes on. John adds this last chapter and oh yes, John wrote it. It fits with everything else that he wrote. Here's the point. After the resurrection of Jesus, there's not a period. There's a comma. Better yet, It's not a happy ending after Jesus is raised from the dead. There's another chapter, a whole nother chapter, not an ending. What's next? After you've been raised to new life in Jesus, you've put your faith in him, you've professed faith, you believe you're a Christian, you have life in him now. It's not the end of a story. Do you spend your life functionally as a Christian thinking, I didn't know there was a chapter 21? I thought the Christian life was just looking back to Jesus and what he did on the cross and being thankful for that. Fighting my sin, what we said last week, I can throw some punches back, I can step away now, be a part of what God's doing in the world now, I can work on loving my neighbor. Um, Is that the Christian life for you? It's always looking back, just thinking, I'm just supposed to be perpetually grateful. We are, we should be, we get to be, but is that all? Or did you get the memo that there's another chapter, that it wasn't a happy ending after the resurrection, it was a new chapter, and that's what I read to you just a few minutes ago. John adds one last consequential chapter, and that's where he answers the question, what's next? This is where John shows you what's next, and it's not like a bunch of bullet points about the Marshall Plan. Here's what's next. First, there's this policy and this thing and this promise for you and everything else. It's more like John says, let's go walk through Paris in 1952, four years after the Marshall Plan has brought Europe back to life and cafes are setting up shop and coffee cups are clinking around and people are riding bikes down the street and business is humming again. John's going to show you what's next, not tell you, and that's what lies ahead. So, what do we see in this new beginning? As we walk through these streets of a resurrected person, a resurrected humanity, a resurrected world that Jesus has brought about, what do you see? Briefly, and these will be kind of the headings for this little conversation we'll have for the rest of the evening, what is next? A new beginning. What does it mean? Supernatural fruitfulness, humbling restoration, shared responsibility fruitfulness, restoration, and responsibility. What do we mean by supernatural fruitfulness? Well, this is like what most of the chapter is about. Uh, John comes right out of the gates in this story talking about fruitfulness, fruitfulness, fruitfulness. Let me set up the scene. By this point, we know the disciples have seen or been with or heard about the resurrected Jesus now three times. The first time is what Nathan preached about last fall. It's on the podcast. Uh, the The morning of the resurrection, Mary goes to the tomb expecting to find what every human being who's ever gone to a graveyard expects to find: their loved one buried. But she finds nobody there. She encounters Jesus. She goes back and tells the disciples, "The Lord is missing," and then the Lord is alive. Some time later, Jesus goes and meets the disciples behind locked doors as they're still cowering from the authorities in Jerusalem that they think are going to get them next. Jesus says, my peace be with you, and he talks to Thomas and restores him. This is the third time now that Jesus has been with or appealed to the disciples. Jesus told them the last time he was with them, go back to the Galilee, which is the region they all were from, his hometown. Go back and I'll meet you there. They obeyed, and that's why we find them In Galilee. John says, because Jesus made it important, there's a strategic, there's something very purposeful and important about how Jesus chose to appear to his disciples. Put yourself in in that scene. Some of you were there a year and a half ago as we stood at this very spot on the edge of the Galilee right by Capernaum, but imagine the scene if you have this big old lake with mountains on either side of it, you hear the water lapping up, Um, And there's a miraculous catch of fish that you're towing into the shore. uh, And you realize it's Jesus who's just accomplished this miracle. And Jesus is obviously making the connection with these disciples that you're fisher of men. Jesus has brought his disciples back to where it all began. Probably this very spot is where it all began. You remember the accounts of Jesus calling his initial disciples? put down your nets come and follow me he says I'll make you fisher of fishers of men in Luke 5 when there's a a huge catch of fish and Jesus says do you want to do this with people and now he's gone back to where it all began the epicenter of his ministry three years prior with these very men and he's bringing everything full circle now strategically Jesus arrives just after a really frustrating failure Doesn't Jesus often arrive on the scene in your life just after a really frustrating failure? His arrival time is strategic. It's perfectly timed. And it is for his disciples on this particular morning as well. Why? So that they, so that we can do the compare and the contrast of life on my terms, of life in my strength, life in his strength. So after this night of frustrating failure, a stranger shows up on the shore and it's just, it's not even sunrise. It's just when the light kind of glows in the morning. And these professional, commercial, lifetime fishermen who all grew up in this town on this lake, who know it like the back of their hands, have a stranger from the shore yell, Hey, are the fish biting? And they're probably surprised anybody else is awake. No. And again, professional fishermen, random stranger, and they're like, just leave. Like yet, yeah, no, they're not biting. They were annoyed because they hadn't gotten anything that night. And that was a pretty uncommon thing on the Sea of Galilee. Um, when we were there, the guide was telling us the Sea of Galilee's source of water for it is these freshwater springs. When the desert heat has heated up the Sea of Galilee all during the day, the water gets warmer, the oxygen levels go down when water gets warmer. These freshwater springs, just freezing cold water pouring into the Sea of Galilee. All the fish kind of congregate around those inlets at night. Fishing was easy on the Sea of Galilee. You just went to one of those inlets, you put nets down, and you caught fish. And here's all these fishermen, and they didn't catch a single thing that night. And this stranger makes a recommendation. Don't professionals love getting recommendations from amateurs? Isn't it the best? It's like, you know you're just up to here in organic chemistry, and you tell your mom or your dad, I got a D on the test, and your mom or your dad offers that super awesome piece of advice. Well, have you thought about studying? You're like, oh, thanks, Mom. That's, that was the problem. Next time, I'll read the book beforehand. It's insulting. The recommendation, just throw your net down to the right side of the boat. I'm flabbergasted that they did it. I don't know why they did it, honestly. If I was on the boat, I'd be like, who's this stooge? Like, just ignore him and it'll go away. But maybe to humor him, maybe to be like, okay. They throw the net over, and they feel the first wiggle of the night as they start seeing water clap up above that net as tons of fish are caught up in it. It's an interesting thing to take away from this simple trust in Jesus' request. Simple trust trust in Jesus' requests is the secret to fruitfulness. And it's not a secret. It's an open secret. But that's the secret to fruitfulness, to a mark that is, to a life that is marked by multiplication and not addition, not subtraction, but a life that just keeps exponentially facilitating, creating other life all around it. Those people that when they leave here at senior send off, you're like, How are we going to go on without them? Because life just followed them everywhere they went. People were Christians because of them. People began to take their faith seriously because of them. People learned how to people learned about grace because of them. Those kind of people heard the open secret that the secret to supernatural fruitfulness is simple trust in Jesus' requests. It was such a tiny task that Jesus asked of his disciples. Uh, gravity did the work. All they had to do is throw it. Throw the net out the right side of your boat, Such a simple request that hit at such big pride. Right? We're professionals. I'm an expert. My grandpa, my dad taught me these waters and how to fish them. I've been doing this my whole life. I can do it in my sleep. And you just and I just need to throw the net over the right side of the boat, OK? thanks. Again, I'm I'm flabbergasted that they did it. But that's the secret to supernatural fruitfulness. And if that's the secret to supernatural fruitfulness, the secret to supernatural fruitlessness is trusting in our own expertise, our own familiarity, our own competence, our own preparation. I'm talking to college students. Let me say that again. The secret to supernatural fruitlessness is trusting in your own expertise, familiarity, competence, and preparation. I'm not saying that all those things are bad. They're not. They're good. God wants you to do those things. That's faithfulness. Learning is good. But expecting your familiarity, your competence, your expertise, your experience to render supernatural results is foolish, right? That's pride. Expecting those things to render these results, these men expecting their expertise and familiarity to bring in a night's catch, uh, would have been uh, foolishness. Nearness to Jesus, an open ear to Jesus, a heart that's yielded to Jesus, a heart that wants Jesus, or a heart that realizes it might not want Jesus, but it needs Jesus and prays, oh boy, does he hear those prayers, and does he draw near, and does he bring fruit? What do I mean by supernatural fruitfulness? What does John mean by that? Well, 153 fish. You might wonder, what's the deal with John numbering everything? Fishermen count fish. It's their livelihood. They charge based on how many fish are there. Pastors count people who show up to church. The athletic association counts people who buy tickets to football games. Concert venue people or the musicians who play there always want to know how many people came. Whatever your niche is, you count stuff in that area. It's important to you. 153 fish, it's not some symbolic weird number. It's just an amazing, unimaginable catch of large fish in one cast. And John is saying this is the supernatural harvest. What does a supernatural harvest in your life look like? supernatural results or fruitfulness, things happen in your life or things happen in proximity to your life that you don't have any explanation for except that God must have shown up. Jesus must have smiled on that. He must have helped. He must have shouldered this for me. He must have come. I know many of you know this because you experience it. Some of you are experiencing this in your life right now, this simple, uh, Jesus has softened your heart and there's a willingness to listen to him now and perhaps you, f- you finally found the courage or just white-knuckled it and you might have broken up with the guy or the girl that you knew you probably should have broken up with two years ago. But you finally realized, Jesus, if I have you, I can go without him or I can go without her. I'm holding on to you. And the supernatural fruit in your life is that the world didn't come unglued or fall apart like you feared it would. Jesus really was enough, and you've actually found yourself more healthy now than you were back in that relationship. Some of you experience this in groups that you lead, like a prayer group or a Bible study. Your group's exploding, and you don't know why, maybe numerically, but for a lot of people more in depth. It might be that the three people who come are finally getting real about their lives. You're finally not doing the dog and pony show of Christian small groups where we all show up and agree to not talk about anything real or anything present tense. But people are talking about stuff right now that they're confused about, scared about, ashamed about, stuck in tonight. Not things I beat. And your, your group, is, it's springtime in your group. Blossoms are coming out. Life is coming out. Or people are inviting friends. You've got to hear this. You, hey dude, on the end of the hall, you've got to come with me to hear this stuff supernatural fruitfulness, not because somebody read a book about how to ask better questions in a small group, not because someone mastered communication techniques, but probably because someone in weakness believed Jesus. When he said, weakness, oh, I can work with that. It's my favorite thing to work with. And you stepped into a little bit of a scary place and maybe you shared your weakness. You shared your present sin. And within three weeks, everybody else felt safe to come out into the light. And now you're cooking. Now that group is transforming lives. And you don't know why except that God showed up. Uh, Nathan was telling me about Nicole's walk in the neighborhood. Nicole, sorry, you didn't know I was going to say this. Wherever you are, there you are. Walking down her neighborhood, meets one of her neighbors, uh, I guess invites her to church or Christianity Explored at your church. And she comes and texted you all a few days ago that she's a Christian now. I don't know if Nicole's an expert in Buddhism or world religions. You might know a little bit about them, but you're shaking your head. You're not a PhD in it. It was probably a sense in Nicole that she believes Jesus when he says the harvest is plentiful. It's the workers that are scarce. Christians who believe that there is a supply problem in the kingdom of God, not a demand problem. The world is not short of people who want Jesus. The world is short of people who will talk about Jesus. The harvest is a bumper crop. It's the workers that are so few. And so she gets to know this neighbor and invites her. And guess what? I guess they're a little surprised, but I guess they're also not at all surprised because this is what God does all the time. Supernatural fruitfulness. And we can't explain it because of our programs or our planning. I have a fear about RUF. You wanna know what it is? UGA is a kind of place in this cultural moment, we're in the South, where you can just do a lot of cool programs, have great worship, have some systems up and running, and hundreds of people will come. And it means absolutely nothing about whether the Spirit of Jesus is showing up in that place and working or not. Because natural fruit or supernatural fruitlessness is totally explainable by our planning, our systems, our programs, our better initiatives to try to assimilate these people or make these people feel welcome at the door with name tags. I'm not opposed to that stuff. We do it, but friends, what Noah said earlier, that prayer team is the heart of this ministry, and to whatever we're doing that's not in reliance to Jesus, we might as well stop doing it, because it's him who said, apart from me, Don't even bother. You can't do anything. He didn't say, it's gonna be a little bit. He said, nothing, apart from me, nothing will happen. I've told you all a little bit about my fraternity, but let me tell you some good news and some bad news about me. The good news is, when I was a brand new Christian, I was in this fraternity, and um, we saw 10% of our chapter radically converted in one year, never heard of that happening. That's the closest thing to a revival I've ever experienced. Um, I'd been a Christian a couple of months, and I remember sitting on the front porch with guys till 2 in the morning, and guy after guy, we just were finding our way into these conversations. I had read no book on evangelism. I'm a bad evangelist, by the way. I didn't know anything about apologetics. I I had experienced Jesus' resurrection power in my life so much, I couldn't not talk about it. And guess what? It wasn't just because of me. There was a lot of guys. Dominoes started falling. Guy after guy after guy. 180. I had a fraternity brother text me at the beginning of quarantine. I haven't talked to him in 12 years I don't know if he's a Christian or not But he texted me I have not texted him in 12 years was the last time stamp and he said hey Ben I don't remember. I don't know if you remember giving me the Bible that you gave me Um, but I really appreciate it's been it's meant a lot to me lately I, I can't explain that I thought nothing came of that and he texts me 12 years later. Friends and we would sit at Starbucks till the wee hours of the morning reading through Romans. I had no clue what Romans even taught. I was learning, but I'm like, why don't you come and learn too? Now, lest you think I'm some rock star with this, I am not. Here's my conviction. I wonder often if there was more fruit coming out of my life back then when I knew next to nothing than now when I'm an expert and I've been to seminary and have read all the books. Because you know what I'm prone to do now? Trust my training. Lean into my familiarity with apologetic conversations. You're Hindu, great, let's talk about it. I can have that conversation. You're an atheist, awesome. We can undo those arguments. That's the problem. Not the training is bad, but the thinking that training results in lives resurrecting out of the grave. Friends, do you struggle with the same things? Peter's restoration, and we end here. We saw that uh, the simple secret to supernatural fruitfulness is simply listening to Jesus's requests. Well, what do we do when we're people like us and you're wondering, well, Ben, that's the problem. I don't have much to show for my life. Well, welcome to the club. I cannot imagine what life was like for Peter. The rock that the church was gonna be built on. He was the one, the leader, the one that Jesus had handed the baton to, and not once, not twice, but three times repudiates, even knowing Jesus. Throws him under the bus, backs over him, drives over him, backs over him again. Peter still knew Jesus. Peter loved Jesus. That day when he sees him, he just instinctively jumps into the lake and starts swimming after him. When he gets to the shore. At some point he would have smelled something that triggers him and sends him back a few days prior. There's only two places in all the Gospels where this language of a charcoal fire appears. The previous time it appears, it's the fire that Peter is warming himself by when the little girl comes and says, didn't you know Jesus? It's the only two times that kind of fire is ever described in the Gospels, and here it is again. And what a, what a distinct smell. You know game day just like me, charcoal. Peter reaches the shore and he smells charcoal burning. And I don't know what he felt, but I think it was one of those moments where your stomach drops out from under you. And that exhilaration probably just evaporated into, I don't know what, shame, regret, wondering what is he going to say because as of yet he hadn't talked to me. Jesus makes him breakfast. He has breakfast with this little band of doubters and deniers, and he's so kind to them. They're not talking much, but Jesus shifts the conversation at the end. He says, Peter, son of John. Or he says, Simon, son of John. Simon, son of John. Simon, son of John. And Peter's, uh, Jesus is no longer using the name he usually used for Peter, which was Peter or Simon Peter, which means rock, steady one, foundation. Jesus is, Jesus is calling Peter by his boyhood name. Simon, John's little boy. Jesus is signaling to Peter, Peter, you're weak. You, th- you mistakenly thought when I called you the rock that you were a rock. My work in your life is the rock. My grace given to you and empowering you, that's the granite, Peter. You weren't the granite. And Jesus has a really uncomfortable conversation as he restores Peter. Peter as he does with all of his disciples. Jesus wants to talk to you and me about what we've done and about what we've not done, not to punish you, but to help you grow, to help rehabilitate you, to help us move forward. Jesus is so patient, three times making sure that Peter, Peter, the lights come on, his eyes open, his heart softens. Jesus didn't ask him, are you ever gonna do it again, do you promise? That's not what he asked. Did he pull out a piece of paper and he said, sign here now so I can trust you. I'm not not doing the verbal commitment again. Put it in writing, Peter, that you're never gonna throw me under the bus again and deny me like you did. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say, promise me that that's the last time. Jesus simply asks, do you love me? Peter knew that he loved Jesus because he knew he needed Jesus. Jesus asks you, not do you pinky square promise that you're not going to do it again. Jesus knows you're going to do it again. Jesus can separate resurrection from rehabilitation. He has resurrected you. He is rehabbing you. He knows we're going to fall again. He simply asks you, do you love me? And if you say yes, he sends us out in mission to one another, and he says, well, then serve. Take responsibility for the ones that I love my sheep. Care for them. Get to know the people on your row. Maybe you sign up for circles next time or your church's small group or an RUF small group because you need people to love and care for and serve. You, because Jesus calls you to take responsibility for your friends' lives, to pray for them, advocate them, and shoulder their burdens. Friends, Jesus fully restores Peter. Three denials and three affirmations. He is clean, he is not disqualified, he is re-qualified and he is sent out in mission. There is not a single person in this room who is in Jesus and is too dirty to be used by God, too weak, too ignorant of theology, too socially awkward to be used by God in Athens, Georgia during your college years to bring supernatural fruit to your friend group, your classmates, your hall, your house. Jesus has defeated death. He can defeat doubt. Let's pray. Jesus, our great hope as we look at this post Christian, secular, pluralist world that just doesn't want to have much to do with you anymore, our great hope is that if you can defeat the devil, death, and the grave, this little cultural moment is no match for you. This moment that will fade and give way to a new cultural moment, it's nothing for you. We're afraid to talk to our friends, Jesus. I am and they are because of this thing that we're in. It's just not popular to talk about you. Uh, You sent your church into a world that knew nothing about you, that knew nothing about the church, nothing about the gospel, and the church exploded in growth. Would you help us trust you, hold to you, believe you, and thank you, since August feeding us out of John's gospel we're so grateful to you for that